Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom. Welcome to my podcast, where we will go deep into the lair of the purple worm instead of down into the rabbit hole, where we'll voyage into the astral realm of my mind and explore the verse of nerd culture. This is Phantom Thoughts. In this episode, I unveil another denizen of the North. We've got a call in from Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and I've put forward what I think we should do moving forward if Wizards of the Coast does in fact adopt a more restrictive open game license. Denizens of the North. Snowswarm. We fly on the wind. We live in the sleet and in the snow. When the wind howls, we strike. The bite you feel in the storm is not the cold. It is us. We feast on your flesh. We feed on your warmth. And when you are found, missing ears, nose, fingers, and toes, our handiwork will be dismissed as mere results of the cold. Those who think themselves ready for the frosty world will be our next meal. Until then, we wait in the skies. And now a brief call-in from Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Hey, Pink Phantom, Jason here. Sorry about not leaving a message for 33. I tried. I, the Anchor web app is just giving me fits when I try to use it. It's basically unusable for me now, my phone. So, sorry about that. And I still, I know you've told me in the past, but I still don't know if it's Phantom 01 or Phantom Numeric 1 or Phantom... O-N-E, so that's why I'm not sending emails. But as far as 34 goes, I think that's a good definition of the difference between old school and new school. I don't have any problem with that definition at all. I think that's pretty good. The Hickman and, and some of those things, once they started doing those adventures that were really railroady, that's one of the reasons it kind of gets a bad name to some degree for adventure design. But there are also some amazing ideas out there that come from them. You know, you look at the XDM books and some other things. So I don't know. It's kind of a mixed bag, I guess. I've never read the fiction, so I can't talk about that. But I'm going you know, to talk about the game modules to some degree. Anyway, keep up the great job. Uh, Happy New Year, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Jason, for the call. Uh, for anyone else out there that wants to reach me by email, it is the Pink Phantom, and then just the number one at gmail.com. Uh, I already sent this information to to Jason, so he's got that now. Uh, as far as the Hickman the Hickman manifesto, yeah, there I understand that some of those modules that they wrote, particularly the Dragonlance ones, were pretty railroady. I don't know if the if the module came before the novels or the novels came before the module. If the modules came second, then it could be kind of understandable they'd be railroady because people are probably wanting to play something in the fiction so they probably are looking for a more railroady thing that takes them down the same the same path and the whole thing about railroads is you just want to don't want to force people's hands where they don't have any choices and i think that applies whether it's the gm or whether it's the players because obviously you know there's a lot of controversy about how much backstory a character should have especially among old school players you know but backstory does help influence the role-playing aspect and the role-playing part of it 
sometimes for players to give them more of a feel for their character. But you just don't want a backstory that locks the GM in to where they've got to do something for that character to make, you know, some prophecy or something in the backstory come true or something like that. But at the end of the day, you know, if a character hasn't has a series of adventures and ends up carving out for themselves their own kingdom, does it matter if in the story that the players and and GM tell afterwards that that kingdom was just something that they built and conquered or whether it was that they were, that they were a lost member of a noble family who found their old kingdom and liberated it from whatever oppression they had or rebuilt it from whatever disaster beset it. I mean, that's just, you know, the details that you're telling of the adventures you had, it didn't affect any die rolls. It didn't affect, it didn't limit the decisions that the characters made during the course of their adventuring. It's just the story you're telling. So what if it was, if it tie if it ended up the GM managed to tie it into a piece of a character's backstory, does it hurt anything? I don't think it does. But again, you don't want to say, well, GM, you got to do this. And on the same, in the same vein, you don't want the GM just driving the characters down one road. Nope. Don't pay attention to that, to that, turn don't pay attention to what's going on over here just keep going right down this road and you're going to get where i want you to get that's really what we're trying to avoid and i think some of the difference in tastes in terms of what kind of character backstory should there be and in terms of how you construct an adventure has to do to the difference between how much you're interested more in the role playing of the characters whether it's the player characters or the characters around the player characters by the GM versus how much you're more interested in the more wargaming aspects. Because let's face it, this is a hobby that was built out of wargaming. And to be honest with you, I think if OD&D were put out today with, you know, if there were no such thing as role-playing game and that an OD&D were put out today, it would be considered a quirky quirky little piece of skirmish wargaming. I don't even know that it would, people would say, oh, look at that. Look at how different that is. Because you have war games today where people play small bands or into even individual, there are even individual creatures or units of one person and they all have different special abilities and they all do different things. And an OD&D party where you have a handful of player characters and then you have their retainers, followers, hirelings, hitchmen, whatever, you would have a lot of difficulty today picking the difference between what's referred to in a lot of skirmish war games as a war band and the adventuring party of OD&D. It's just a matter of perspective, I think. One man's opinion. Thank you again, Jason, for calling in. And now for sort of the, the final topic of the podcast here, I want to talk just another, a little bit more. I know some of us are probably tired of it, of all the sturm and drang going on about the changes that Wizards of the Coast seems to be making to the open game license on this going on, discussions going on online. Uh, I know a lot of people have a lot tied up in this in terms of creators who have, who have kind of founded themselves on 
producing content for Dungeons and Dragons. And a lot of people are angry about it. They want Wizards of the Coast to stay with the current open gaming license, which is a lot more generous in its terms. But there comes a point where you have to, if this is, in fact, the open gaming license they're going to be going with on, supposedly, it's supposed to roll out on Friday, according to the reports that have been put out. Uh, we have to look at how how to adapt to it because because there's a more restrictive open gaming license doesn't mean you can't continue to produce content for Dungeons and Dragons or even that you have to participate in that open gaming license. But it does mean one way or another, you're going to have to change the way you do things. So I want to look at it from a little more positive set. What can we do? Not what we think Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro should do. Uh, the main thing, one of the big things is going to be terminology because what Wizards of the Coast has done in the past with Magic the Gathering was there is a, a mechanic in Magic the Gathering called tapping where you use an ability or use a card as a resource and you turn it essentially perpendicular. If it's in port, essentially if it's in portrait mode as you're looking at it, you turn it to landscape mode as soon as you use it. So you know you used it. It's called tapping. And Wizards of the Coast has established in court that they own the copyright. I don't know if it's a copyright or or exactly what part of intellectual property law it falls under, but they own the right to call that game mechanic tapping. No one else can call it tapping. If you produce a card game where you take your card and you turn it perpendicularly after you use it, you can't call it tapping. That is owned by Wizards of the Coast. Now, tapping is a common word, but in that context, in, for use in that type of a game setting, Wizards owns that, owns that, that's their IP, essentially. So, there are a lot of things in Dungeons and Dragons that could essentially fall into that category. So, if you want to make fantasy role-play material that is adjacent to Dungeons & Dragons but does not draw on Dungeons & Dragons and trying to avoid the wrath of Wizards of the Coast, we're going to have to change some things. And a lot of it's going to, a lot of terminology is going to have to think. You're probably not going to be able to use armor class. You're probably not going to be able to use hit points. Now, maybe, maybe some of those terms are more established within gaming as a whole that Wizards of the Coast won't be able to say we we own that. We use that. We own that. It goes back into the depths of, of the history of role-playing games and no one else can use that but us. And certainly given that they worked to establish tapping, they may very well do that with the intellectual property so that they believe is associated with Dungeons & Dragons. So we may have to resort to using terms like armor or defense instead of armor class or health instead of hit points, attack roll instead of hit roll, ability roll instead of ability check or skill check, and things of that nature. And that's where I think our mindset should be. What can we look at in Dungeons & Dragons that they could probably say belongs to them versus what we're going to be able to use ourselves the way that they organize their stat blocks you're not going to be able to organize your stat blocks like that anymore 
that will make it harder on a consumer to use your products with Dungeons and Dragons. But you can put out products that would be useful for virtually any fantasy role-playing game if you make some of these types of changes. And that's where I think we should really be focusing now. Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro are going to do what they're going to do. And, you know, so why should we change? Because they have the right to do that. I mean, they, for for as much as people say, that's not D&D from both sides, from the newest group that just began playing with 5e to the oldest group that's been playing since OD&D and maybe even working on something before that that was very adjacent to what D&D became. If they were in the war, if they've been in the wargaming hobby that long, they like to say that's not D and D. First edition, only first edition is only D and D. Only things that were published by TSR are D and D. Only things up to third edition are D and D. But it doesn't matter what we think. I know we like to think that we like to think we have ownership of this this game, this genre that we love, but we don't. Hasbro, I mean Wizards of the Coast bought TSR and all their intellectual property, including Dungeons and Dragons. Hasbro bought Wizards of the Coast and all their properties, including Dungeons and Dragons. They own Dungeons and Dragons, the intellectual property. They are the only ones that have the right, legally, to call their product Dungeons and Dragons. And for the last 20 years, every, crea- every other creator in the space has kind of had it easy. They haven't had to try to establish their brand. They could hitch themselves to the Dungeons and Dragons brand because Wizards of the Coast, with 3rd Edition, made the decision to have the open gaming license and the system resource document that the open gaming license was adjacent to, was attached to, to give a large portion of Dungeons and Dragons essentially for free to other creators. This doesn't happen in other entertainment industries. Okay, Disney and Paramount are not about to just let anybody use Star Wars or Star Trek intellectual property. And over the years, the game companies that have had a license to create a Star Trek game or a Star Wars game have had to pony up money to the people that own the property. And when that property was taken away, have had to stop producing content entirely based on that property. And if they wanted to continue producing adventures in that vein, they would have to essentially redo their system so that it was not impinging on those intellectual properties. In the same way, the Tolkien estate. The Tolkien estate is very protective of anything related to Lord of the Wings. Lord of the Rings, excuse me. Uh, Even going outside of gaming and fantasy and science fiction, Coke and Pepsi. They don't just put their formula out there and say, hey, put together a derivation on that and you can say that it's it's a, a cola based on the world's favorite cola. They don't do that. This is business as usual for big businesses and Hasbro is a big business. And to me, it was only a matter of time that this was going to trickle down. Are Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro doing the right thing? I don't know. The other talk other than the other big topic of talk online other than they need to go back to the way it was. We need to make them 
go back to the way it was is they're shooting themselves in the foot. They're going to destroy the property. It's going to be exactly what happened with Corey again. Somebody else is going to move in. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that is. They've grown the game. I think everybody agrees that they've grown the game with 5e, and they brought in people that weren't role-playing before. And some of these folks, particularly folks that are, that if they picked up, if they were been born since 3e first came out, into a world where, you know, paying a monthly fee to have access to something is not only common, it's accepted as that's the way the world is. They may not mind the world that Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast are trying to make where they bring in more revenue through things like VTTs with a monthly fee or a subscription service that gets you Dungeons and Dragons material as it comes out. They may not care. And if that's true, then this may be the way to go forward. And I think a lot of things that people kind of shove to the side or don't pay attention to or don't think about is when 4E came out, they didn't try to change the existing OGL for 3E. So the folks at Paizo were able to put out Pathfinder, which was essentially, you know, Dungeons and Dragons 3.75. A lot of people called it Dungeons and Dragons 3.75, where they took the Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 engine, made some changes they wanted, put their own fiction intellectual property on top of that, and sold it and had great success. If they are, if, but if Hasbro and Wizard of the Coast are successful in rolling back the old OGL and only having the new OGL, the OGL 1.1, as a lot of people are calling it, then that won't be a viable option for another publisher to just take the old stuff and the old license and work with it. And maybe it will be. Maybe it'll blow up in their face. I don't know. But, you know, anybody that thought that things were going to keep going the way they were, where they're just giving away essentially their property to other people to make money off of and not want a piece of it, not want to govern it, not wanting to have a say over it, that's not the way licenses for role-playing have worked, except for Dungeons and Dragons and a lot of smaller systems that have popped up since then that have been, you know, inspired by that open game license that think that's the way they should go. And and a lot of those folks are the folks that are obviously the maddest right now. But, you know, it doesn't change what's already out there. If you own a bunch of books and materials, you can still use those books and materials. There's not going to be any intellectual property police coming in to govern your game and your campaign. It's just what you will be able to create and share or sell will be more restricted. So I think we need to get out of the outrage mindset, out of the we're going to stop a mindset, and turn more towards what can we do to adjust if this is as bad as people are reporting it is. So there you go. What do you think out there? Let me know. And that's going to do it for another episode of Phantom Thoughts. If you have any feedback you'd like to leave, you can contact me by leaving a voice message at anchor.fm slash the-pink-phantom or you can send an email to thepinkphantom1 at gmail.com or you can contact me on Twitter at thepinkphantom. 
The music in this episode was Strength of the Titans and Late Night Radio by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license from creativecommons.org slash licenses slash buy slash 4.0.